In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Good morning, Vermont, and Happy New Year, one and all. This is the Tuesday edition of Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Brad Wright. We have uh, a good deal to talk about. Uh, first, we continue our discussion of the gun law challenge brought by a group of Vermont sportsmen's clubs to a couple of new firearms restrictions that were passed into law without Governor Scott's signature. The president pro tem of the Vermont Senate, Phil Baruth, joins us in just a moment to talk about that. Later on, we have uh, Joe Roman, the author of a new book. He is a conservation biologist and marine ecologist at the Gund Institute at UVM. He'll tell us about how maybe we could think a little differently about poop. Speaking of protecting ecology, how are we doing with trash recycling and other aspects of trash disposal, plastic bottles, keeping microplastics out of our oceans and other waterways? Beth Parent of the Chittenden Solid Waste District will join us to talk about that. And uh, Legal Aid's chief health care advocate, Mike Fisher, will join us in the final half hour to discuss how we might improve the Medicare Savings Program in Vermont. But uh, our first guest of the new year is uh, State Senator Phil Baruth uh, of Burlington, who serves as the President Pro Tem of the Vermont Senate. He also serves as Clerk of the Committee on Appropriations and as a member of the Senate Committee on Judiciary. His party banner is Democrat Progressive. The legislature goes back into formal session tomorrow, so Senator Baruth is already a busy guy. Senator, welcome. Uh, good morning, Brad. Can you hear me all right? I can hear you just fine. Uh, we invited Senator Bruth to discuss the challenge that the Vermont Federation of Sportsmen's Clubs and other allied groups are presenting in federal court to a couple of new gun laws in the belief that they violate the Second Amendment. Um, Senator, what do you think about this challenge, uh, just, you know, to just to get the ball rolling? Sure. Um, well, it wasn't unexpected. It was pretty clear from the moment the Supreme Court issued what's now called the Bruin decision that a lot of gun laws that were in place, in this case the high-capacity magazine ban, would be challenged again. And then a piece that we just passed last session, 72-hour waiting period, was added to that challenge. So the thing about the Bruin decision that I find uh, very hard to understand is it was authored by Clarence Thomas, and he makes the case that in order to regulate guns, your regulation has to have some analogous law or regulation from the founding period or from the 19th century. And so custom and tradition becomes the touchstone for constitutionality. And, okay, so that's sort of uh, easy to understand, although I don't agree with it, necessarily in all of its forms. But what he also made clear, Justice Thomas, is that custom and tradition doesn't extend to the weapon itself. In other words, 
the founding fathers were dealing with muzzle loaders and other, uh, you know, guns that produced single bullets. Right, muskets. Uh, at, at, a, at a shooting, and then, you know, there was a period of reloading. Um, what, what would they have said had they confronted the idea that every American could own a weapon that could kill a small army in a small number of minutes? Um, and so Justice Thomas made it clear that he doesn't believe in that decision that evolution in terms of technology changes anything. Um, so on the one hand, it's custom and tradition for regulations, but not custom and tradition for technology. And I, I have a hard time with that myself. Um, I suspect that uh, a lot of people uh, agree with you about that. Um, but let's get to the specifics. The 10-round uh, limit for a rifle magazine and a 15-round limit for a handgun. And then a 72-hour waiting period for, purpose, for a purchase or transfer, um, uh, as opposed to what had been in place before. Scott Bradley of the Sportsman's Club says that's an infringement. Yes, he does. And... You know, I, I have had this set of discussions many times with folks. Um, uh, I think Chris Bradley is a very smart guy, and um, I, I think of him as somebody who's thoughtful and careful in what he says, and it's a genuine disagreement. But the Supreme Court has to, I believe, the reason that they've taken this case that they're now deciding, I think, is they realize there are problems with the Bruin decision, and they have at least uh, a five-member majority of them have decided they need to revisit it and nuance it a little more. So that's what we're going to be waiting on from the Supreme Court, um, and then this case that the sportsmen's uh, associations have brought will work its way, I'm sure, toward that court. Um if the law was aimed at diminishing some of the firepower of the AR-15, because the standard clip with that with that weapon holds 20 rounds, the Vermont law under challenge says no, there's only going to be 10. But there's no number, there's no limit rather on the number of clips you can have, right? Right, and and you know this is this is how uh, uh, desperate we are as a people, and and what I mean is. We're a people who are experiencing a wave of mass violence that is just historically unprecedented. You pick up the paper every day, and there are people in churches massacred, you know, nightclubs massacred, uh, synagogues massacred, people walking around in shopping malls. Someone just walks in with an AR-15 or other weapon and kills them. So what this high-capacity magazine law does is it makes sure that those people would have to reload um, and switch clips. And that's, you know, a, a measure of how limited our response is by the court system's interpretation of the Second Amendment. So I don't think it's an overreach at all. I think it's crazy that that's the limit we can limit uh, a semi-automatic weapon to. Well, when I asked him, when I asked uh, Chris Bradley, um, you know, isn't this kind of an easy workaround? He says no, 
and saying that if criminals attack you, they choose the time and place. It's an arbitrary limit. So what he's talking about is the um, AR-15 in that context as a defensive weapon. Right. But, I mean, I would just ask people riding right now in their cars thinking about this. Um, if you're talking about self-defense, do you need 20 bullets? If, if you're, you know, defending yourself against someone who uh, knocks on your door and seems likely to want to come in whether you want them in or not, do you need an assault weapon? Or, or wouldn't a pistol with a smaller clip do that job? So when we had this argument on the Senate floor, John Rogers, uh, who was then a senator from uh, the Northeast Kingdom, and a great guy and a friend of mine, but we always faced off on the floor over this. And his argument was, I need one more bullets than the number of gang members who might come to my house. And so if you limit me to 20, what happens if a gang comes with 21? If you limit me to 50, what happens with a gang that comes with 52 members? But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that those are crazy hypotheticals. When when has anybody heard in Vermont of a gang of 20 people coming to take over someone's house? So we need to be realistic and we need to acknowledge that there are mass shootings on a weekly, sometimes daily basis in the United States. It's wrong. It, it's crazy. It has to stop. There have been over 600 um, uh, so-called mass shootings uh, in uh the, the year we just finished, 2023. Yeah. Um, and yet the, and yet the FBI statistics that were released recently s- suggest rather strongly that overall violent crime is going down. Right. And, and that tells you that you're dealing with a specific, strange psychological phenomenon in the United States. You, you see it a bit in other countries, but it's, it's really pretty much limited to us. And it's become a kind of copycat phenomenon, almost a viral phenomenon, where people are watching these things on television. They're aggrieved in their own life. They're mentally ill in their own uh, life. And they decide that they're going to do this, too. And they focus on whatever group of people happens to be near to hand. Could be elementary school kids. Could be people waiting at a movie theater. So, um, you know, I, I... I believe that the Second Amendment is an important part of the Constitution. I just think the interpretation of it, that every house needs an arsenal and is guaranteed an arsenal by the Constitution, we just need to revisit that and be realistic about what's needed for defense, sporting, hunting, target shooting, etc. One of the things that a, a, a federal judge would look at is whether a limit that has been imposed on anything um, is arbitrary. Yeah. How, how did how did how was it reached? Uh, how was the ten round magazine uh, decided on? We had testimony in terms of the technology. What what kind of clips are produced? What what would be um, possible for the average person in terms of um, convenience? in terms of, um, you know, what, what guns hold what clips. So that was mostly done in the House because that was a House piece of legislation that was added. But I think, you know, we tend to operate in the House and the Senate 
from lots of testimony. And in that case, um, you know, the idea that something is arbitrary, I, I think it, it, I think the phrase in the lawsuit is arbitrary and pointless. And the 72-hour waiting period is designed to cut down on suicide. Um, that's its number one purpose. And the high-capacity magazine limit is designed to make it so that a mass shooter is slowed down, if not stopped. Um, to me, those are neither arbitrary nor pointless. Uh, if you would like to ask a question about this topic to um, Senator Baruth, please feel free to do so at 802-244-1777. That's 244-1777. Senator, we have Don from Elmore who is on the line. Don, what's your question for Senator Baruth? I cannot help but wonder how much of the problem we have with firearms in the state of Vermont has been caused by what we have done to education in this state over the past two decades or more. I know at least three retired superintendents that really think we made a mistake when civics, which was a required course, I believe in eighth grade usually, was dropped. We don't have responsibility being taught in the schools anymore like we did before. Too often, school boards are afraid of lawsuits from parents who feel their child uh, is being picked on in school because he can't behave. I, I can't remember when the last time I heard of somebody uh, having a detention class after school because of their behavior. You don't see students being suspended from school these days. What you do see instead is a deputy sheriff on the grounds whenever school is open. What I'm suggesting to you, Senator Baruth, as I recall, you were quite involved in education when you were still in Heinsberg, so I think you know what I'm talking about. I think we need to get some discipline in schools and some teaching of responsibility. That's where you are going to get at the base of the problem, not by simply arguing over the number of shootings we have. Look at the number of motor vehicle accidents we have in this state and the number of people that are hurt. Okay, because all right. Um, I think we got the, 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 the message. Uh, Senator Bruth, um, what's your response to that? Uh, well, just let's take civics for a second. Um, personally, as, as one senator and one voter, I'm all for civics being taught in, in the schools. And there is no reason that a school district can't offer civics. There's no, there's no rule saying you can't teach civics. What, what we have in Vermont is local control over curriculum. So the, the state Senate and the legislature in general are not there to tell communities what to teach. And I think in general, Vermonters prefer it that way. Although in some cases, it, civics is one. Some people believe we should be teaching financial responsibility uh, and lessons about about money before kids graduate. Everybody has their idea about what should be mandated in the schools. But over the years, I've I've come to the conclusion that it's better to let local school districts make those decisions. With that said, um, I would favor in my local district if we were going to add civics. I don't know that that would touch the problem of mass shootings because I think um, the the phenomenon of mass shootings 
is based partially in the availability of warlike technologies that allow one person to arm themselves, put on body armor, become, in a sense, an army of one, and walk into a place with the intention of killing one more than whatever mass shooter they've been idolizing on the Internet. Um, so I take the, the caller's point. I'm all for civics, not for mandating it, um, but I have questions about whether that would stop mass shootings. Uh, we have Senator Phil Baruth on the line, and John from Burlington has a question. John, go ahead. Good morning. First of all, Senator Baruth, thank you for your efforts to bring a little sanity to the gun uh, problems that we have in this country. Um, I, I would like to comment in terms of uh, my belief that many people have a misreading of American history. The belief that everyone had an unlimited number of weapons in their homes, I think, is a fallacy. And an example of that is uh, we go back to Shays Rebellion. The uh, farmers in Massachusetts were marching to Springfield to get guns and ammunition that were stored in the armory. And many of those people had clubs. They did not even have weapons. So this feeling, again, that uh, everyone had guns back in the days of the Revolutionary War, I think, is, uh, is a fallacy. And I would appreciate your comment. Uh, well, first of all, John, thank you for the the call. I, I I love doing WDEV, but not all the calls that I've gotten over the years have been as nice as yours. Um, so let, let me say this. We passed uh, a law last year, and the governor signed it, prohibiting paramilitary training camps. And that was, even under the Bruin decision by the Supreme Court, that was relatively easy to pass. And the reason for that is there's an unbroken tradition going all the way back to the founding that there are laws in many states prohibiting uh, unauthorized militias from organizing, training, and stockpiling weapons. And that tells you what makes common sense, which is just having created a new country and having fought a war for independence, the founding fathers were not psyched about the idea of getting overthrown by unregulated militias in different parts of the country. So there were, there were prohibitions against that. And that makes perfect sense to keep civil order. What we're talking about now is um, trying to get back to some semblance of civil order where you don't have people stockpiling weapons under the Second Amendment um, and, and potentially using those weapons, some of them, to commit these mass shootings we've been talking about. So um, I, I would say that if you look, truly look at the founding period, it was not everybody should have as many guns as possible. They were, they were very careful about regulating. Um, thank you for your question, John. Um, getting back to the three-day waiting period that you mentioned, um, uh, this three-day, the 72 hours, um, which could be as long as seven days, depending on other circumstances, um, rather than completing the transaction on the first visit, if someone has to wait, isn't that an infringement? I don't believe so. I, I, I think, you know, again, if you talk to um, certain members of the guns rights community, they will come up with hypotheticals. And what they'll say is, well, what if someone threatens me and I feel I need a gun to defend myself, and I go and I can't get the gun immediately. Um, my way of looking at it would be uh, you can contact the authorities, 
And I understand in parts of the state the authorities are not immediately available, but you could contact them and within 30 minutes or, or an hour, if you were under threat, you would have a response. Um, it would take you longer than that to go to the gun store, even if they would give you a gun and get back home with it. So that argument never made a lot of sense to me. The 72 hours um, is actually the lowest limit that most states have. Um, it's on the lower side. Yeah, Washington have, State has 10 days, right? Yeah, and um, we at one point passed a 24-hour waiting period, which the governor vetoed, and oddly enough, he vetoed it because he said there wasn't enough research proving that 24 hours would do anything about the problem. There was more research about 48 or 72. So the law we have now is in part because Governor Scott vetoed a 24-hour waiting limit. Hmm. Um, there are a lot of opinions out there about criminals can always get guns and never have to worry about a waiting period or magazine capacity. Um, uh and so, therefore, people should be able to have a gun just so they can defend themselves against whatever. Um, what do you think? I mean, there, it is true. A lot of criminals out there have guns. Absolutely. Um, so this is the way I look at it. So when we set a limit on the highway of 65 miles an hour, everybody in their car has the ability to exceed that limit. And some people do, Right. Some people go 80, some people go 90, but mostly people go 65, 70, something like that. So you change the culture with that 65-mile-an-hour speed limit, and 90% of people more or less adhere to it. So you, you create a culture of lawfulness where fewer people die by car accident. Similar, in my mind, is the idea that if you put a gun law out there, for instance, we've never prosecuted that I've been able to find anybody for carrying a gun onto school property, right? Doesn't, doesn't happen. And the reason it doesn't happen is because everybody knows now that it's against the law to have a gun in schools. And so no one brings their guns in schools, uh, or, or very, very rarely does anybody bring a gun into a school. And that's a good thing. It's, it's creating a culture where People are regulating themselves, and they're doing so in the name of, you know, common sense public safety. So I would make the same argument about these rules. Yes, you could have somebody who decides, I'm going to sell a gun without a background check. There's nothing anybody can do to stop me. Maybe we never catch that person, but we have prevented many, many, many un, uh, background check sales from going forward just by changing the law and changing the law-abiding culture. We just have a few seconds left, um, but uh, red flag laws, do you think they work? I do think they work, and we've had a number of cases in Vermont where they've been used to remove guns in situations that might otherwise have wound up in uh, domestic violence deaths. So I'm a big proponent. We made a change last year to allow family members to initiate that process before it had to be the state's attorney or the AG. Now a family member who feels threatened uh, by the person that they live with because that person is threatening to use a gun on them, they can start the process. People should understand there's due process, uh, so it goes before a judge. 
uh, in a temporary hearing. We got to go. Um, I'm very sorry to interrupt, but uh, Senator Phil Brew, thank you so much for being with us. We just ran out of time. Uh, this is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Joe Roman is a conservation biologist, marine ecologist, and editor-in-chief of eattheinvaders.org. He's the winner of the Rachel Carson Environmental Book Award. Roman has written for the New York Times, Science, Slate, lots of other publications. He is a fellow and writer in residence at the Gund Institute for Environment at the University of Vermont. Joe Roman, uh, we've been looking forward to this for a while. Welcome. Thank you, Brad. It's great to be on with you. Um, your latest book is called Eat, Poop, Die, How Animals Make Our World. It's a really interesting title for an academic work. How did you arrive at that? <laughs> well, um, I was working on whale ecology in Iceland a couple of years ago, and I was putting together a slide for my last talk. And as I was putting it together, I realized that I was studying how whales eat, what happens when they poop, and what happens when they die. And it immediately I said, and that should be the title of my next book. It really captures how animals can influence the planet, both on a global, on global climate scales, but also locally, when they die or when they poop. And I was just thinking about it this morning, Brad, because just before we spoke, I had to take my dog out. And I had to make sure that she peed and pooped on time so that we would have a chance to chat this morning. <laughs> yes, um, that's us uh, every morning, yeah. too. Um, I want to read a passage. I, I didn't have a chance to read the book. Um, I just um, looked at some of um, uh, a little bit of it that was in a sample um, online. Um, let me read you this um, this from uh, your this paragraph from your first chapter. It wasn't that long ago that animals were dismissed by many scientists as bit players on the planet. Plants and microbes took center stage. But in the past decade or so, there has been a radical shift in our understanding of how the world is shaped by predators and herbivores. Landmark studies of seabirds, whales, sea otters, salmon, wildebeest, bison, spiders, grasshoppers, cicadas, and other animals have shown that they can alter the landscape and seascapes where they live with major impacts on ecological function and the services these animals provide. This is really interesting. Um, much of this remains unseen. Few people realize that when they recline on the white sands of Hawaii and other tropical beaches, they are lying in the waste of parrotfish and the poop from coral meals. That's really something and really, really brings it home. Um, uh, uh, it, it is just fascinating. Um, and um, how did you how did you be begin to recognize this? Yeah, well, why don't I start with some of the work that I do? Um, I'm a whale ecologist. And one of the first times I was ever on the water as just a young intern we saw a North Atlantic right whale, and this is one of the most endangered species on the planet. We were excited to see it. The male, it was a male, it came up, it exhaled, and then it took in another breath. And just before it dove or fluked, it left an enormous fecal plume right in front of me. So it was about the size of the boat, right? 
it was brown, it was a very strong smell, and we rushed in immediately to collect it because the scientists I were on the boat with wanted to know what the whales ate, and eventually they could test stress levels. And a few years later, it occurred to me that in the oceans, we study what's called the biological pump, that is gravity, most of the nutrients, the carbon sinks out of the surface. Whales do the opposite. That whale that I saw had mud on its head. It had been diving deep to feed, came to the surface, and released all those nutrients at the surface. We eventually called this a whale pump, this idea that whales were pumping nutrients to the surface. And one of my colleagues said to me, yeah, Joe, you know, sure, there, there must be some nutrients in this feces, but is it ecologically important or is, is it a fart in a hurricane? <laughs> and basically, that's what we've been working on to show the ecological importance for the whales. And we found that they bring as much nitrogen, the limiting nutrients in the, in the Bay of Fundy and that area, as all the rivers combined. So they're very important ecologically. And in the past, when there were 10 times more whales, they would have been enormously impactful in those areas. So that's really where this idea started. And it, it's defined my career, really. And, you know, we talk a lot about poop, but it's also carcasses. We don't have large trees in the ocean, but we have large animals. Whales are the lar Blue whales are the largest animals ever to have existed on the planet. When they die, they bring an amazing amount of food to deep sea systems. And in the deep sea, there aren't many nutrients. More than 100 species have been found only on the carcasses of dead whales. They rely on that. It's basically an island ecosystem in the deep sea. Those whales where you have worms, you have clams, you have octopus, you have tons of different species that are all surviving on that area. So that's really where this story begins, though, you know, a lot of these systems are complicated. So the reason the first chapter starts on what's Searcy Island on a volcanic island is because in that area, we know exactly all the every organism that arrived there from day one. It erupted in the 19 in 1963. No life on it at all. It was hot. It was toxic. And over time, a few plants arrived. Really, it was devoid of life until something really triggered the change, and that was seabirds, common gulls like herring gulls arriving there, one tasty poop at a time. They released a couple of ounces of poop or nitrogen and phosphorus into that system, and all of a sudden, you can see from space the breeding areas of these seabirds, dense grasslands. Insects are attracted to these areas. All of a sudden, this volcanic island that had no life is now has abundant life, all because of the feces that these seabirds were bringing in to the nests. They were feeding on fish and then coming to the nest and releasing these poop, this poop over time, and it changes everything. Hmm. Uh, Joe Roman is a conservation biologist uh, and marine ecologist and uh, a fellow and writer in residence at the Gund Institute for Environment at UVM. Uh, if you have a question for Joe, we would like to uh, field it. Uh, the number to call is 802-244-1777 uh, to talk about uh, ocean ecology. Um, uh, Joe, in an online Q&A about the book, you said the ecological processes I share in this book don't only happen in remote areas. 
They also occur in our backyards. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, I'm, so I'm looking out the window now. What do I see? I see ravens occasionally. You know, we're here in Vermont. Ravens eat carcasses. Um, so they're breaking down that incredible amount of food, and they're releasing it out into the ecosystem, right, through their feces or going into nests. So birds also that are feeding on seeds and, and rodents as well. When rodents feed on seeds, sometimes they'll move them, bury them for wintertime, forget about them, and then that could grow into new new trees. And amazingly, that's especially in a time of climate change, those rodents might be the greatest assistance in helping forests move. Because, of course, a tree, once it starts to grow, doesn't move. But these bold rodents can actually take those seeds long distances. And, and we're seeing that pretty much every day. You can also see it, you know, one, of, one recent day I was following a chickadee and it pooped on me. And I realized, of course, that this is another way, right? This chickadee is going out and feeding. It's releasing these nutrients out into the ecosystem. And then, of course, insects are incredibly important, especially ants. Um, we've all probably seen ants move along our kitchen windowsill or out in the gardens and in the forests. And they play an incredibly important role for not only for moving seeds, but also for building latrines and concentrating nutrients in different areas. And one of the biggest species around here probably is moose. Um, moose are a great system. Uh, they feed, tend to feed in wetlands, and then they move into the forest to rest, and they can transport a bag of fertilizer a day, some of these moose. So they're really important in, um, in moving nutrients around the system. Isn't that interesting? Um, something I never thought of uh, with moose, anyway. Um, mm -hmm. 802-244-1777, that's the number to call if you'd like to ask a question about uh, marine ecology of uh, author Joe Roman. Uh, Joe, you mentioned um, earlier that... Uh, um, of how animals move things around um, in the, in the Q and A uh, online uh, Q and A about the book, you had said that birds and squirrels can carry seeds and move nutrients like they do on remote islands, for example. It's just that we've removed many of the large animals from the landscape. What, what does that mean? There was the, I looked up the study that examines what the amount of biomass of mammals on the planet is right now. So what's the weight of all mammals? One-third of all mammals on the planet are humans, us, and almost two-thirds are domestic animals like cows and sheep and pigs, and only 4% of all the mammals on the planet are wild animals. That includes whales. That includes white-tailed deer. That includes rodents, and I was shocked by this. And I think that's part of the reason that we don't tend to think of animals as that important is because we don't see wild animals that often. We've removed them from these ecosystems. And what we propose is this idea of rewilding, right? So that is we've taken a lot of species out of, uh, let's say, Vermont or out of the oceans. Can we restore them? And not only so they don't go extinct, like with such as um, legislation like the Endangered Species Act, but also so that their ecological roles are restored. So when birds are flying back and forth 
they're bringing those nutrients across, let's say, Vermont, or bringing them from Lake Champlain up into the mountains. Or if we're restoring beavers to this area, they're really probably the poster child for animals that can change ecosystems, right? You can see it in that regard. Can we return moose? Can we return mountain lions? What would the world be like if we saw wild animals every day? I think, um, historically, I imagine people here used to talk about animals like we talk about the weather, that it was birdie, or when you were on the ocean, it was sharky, or that there were a, it's buggy, right? Um, so in, in many ways, my dream is thinking about a future where wild animals also play an important role. That can happen again. Amazingly, in the 1950s, white-tailed deer were pretty much, by the 1950s, white-tailed deer were eradicated from Vermont. People used to go out driving around to see white-tailed deer. We probably think that's funny now, right? They're so common. We can do that for other wild animals as well. And I think it'll bring more joy and more awe, as well as restore those ecological functions that we've broken. Would you believe that uh, doing so, restoring uh, the wild animal uh, landscape uh, uh, to a larger degree than we have now, um, is going to conflict with the need for more housing for people. Sure, we're going to need a balance. That's absolutely right. And that's where proper planning comes in, right? I mean, we want to be building in some ways if we're thinking about wildlife, right? We want to make sure we have wildlife corridors that are established so that they can move north and south, especially with climate change, and also up and down the river systems. There's plenty of room for people in, in Vermont or, or in other states. It's just about planning so that we can share the landscape with wildlife. As some areas are, people are moving away from some areas, that's where we want to actively rewild. And as people are moving into other city areas, then we want small parks, but we also want to recognize that that's likely to be more of a human landscape in areas where we're, dead, where we're more densely found. We keep hearing about um, endangered species, whales, uh, sharks, as now as I understand it. Uh, where do we stand with um, uh, the populations of these animals that, that uh, are so important? Well, I'm glad you mentioned whales. As a whale biologist, you know, I grew up in the 1970s. I grew up in New York City. I never saw a whale, and I never saw a seal. And the waters were polluted, and it really wasn't a very good place to be a wild animal in any way, certainly living in the ocean. The good news is the Endangered Species Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, laws to protect fisheries and the Clean Water Act all have been very effective. And whales are much more common than they were 50 years ago. We can turn it around with proper protections. That's also true in places like Vermont, where white-tailed deer, beaver, wild turkeys, many species have come back. So with proper planning and good effort, we definitely can move things in the right direction. That isn't to say that we're being successful across the board. You mentioned sharks, and shark populations are way down over the past 50 years because of hunting. They're just starting. Some populations are starting to come back now. But it does require an effort to both protect endangered species and also be mindful of the more common ones that we're more likely to see in our backyards 
or, you know, in a drive in, a, in any given day or during a hike. Um, the uh, the shark uh, population, uh, I heard the other day, is uh, quite diminished uh, largely because of uh, some affinity in other cultures for shark fin soup. Uh, that sounds um, kind of crazy to me. Uh, I've heard of it before, uh, but it but it just um, boy, this just seems like a disconnect there. I mean, um, it, shark fin soup, and and it's there's no particular nutritional value for it. Yeah, I mean, you know, humans have a, a track record of, e- of eating species to close to extinction, and, and whales would have been the same, or using their oil or whatever products. Overharvest of any species is unacceptable. And there, the good news is that there has been some changes in the U.S. and other countries to protect shark populations. I'm hopeful that we will turn that around and, and shark populations will be restored. But, yes, overharvesting wild animals in any regard, I think, um, is unacceptable and something that humans can really do better at, um, whether that's shark fins or hunting for fur or hunting whales. Um, the, the goal would be to, to return a lot of these species. And the good news is I, I've spent some time on the shores of Long Island and North Carolina. And at one point I was sitting in a marsh watching a large flock of shorebirds. And I realized 100 years ago they were almost gone because they were commercially hunted then the way sharks are now. But once they were protected, populations came back. So I think we can do the same for sharks. Yeah, we've done the same for uh, the bald eagle, right? Mm-hmm. It's a great example. Finally, you know, we have breeding pairs here in Vermont now. And, you know, seeing one is, is truly a spectacular thing. And now they're in, I think they're in every state except for Hawaii where they're not native. So there's another great example of how we can restore animals, not only protect them from extinction, but also restore their ecological role and hopefully get to see them more often. Because uh, it really is spectacular to see these animals in the wild. I wanted to ask you, since we have a segment on recycling coming up in the next half hour, uh, microplastics in the ocean um, and some plastic that's not micro, um, how much of an impact is this having on, on ocean wildlife? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've been teaching marine conservation for maybe 20 years now, and I have to say plastics wasn't even part of the, the conversation in the beginning, and now it takes up probably two days, three days of class time. It's not only microplastics, but large plastics. We've been talking about whales. One sperm whale stranded, died, and they took all the plastic that came out of its gut, and it covered an entire tennis court. They, it, you know, it had starved to death basically because of all the plastic that was in its stomach. Another highly endangered whale, a small piece of pl- hard plastic the size of a credit card, caused necrosis in its stomach and killed it. We don't even know the impacts of microplastic. This is definitely a time, you know, we don't really have good law- laws curtailing the use of plastics and how it can get into the environment. But certainly that's that's another red alert. Again, one that we really are only beginning to understand. Yeah. Uh, and there's not much question about uh, who is at fault for, for putting mm. the plastic there. Um, even on Midway Island, you're seeing all kinds of plastic issues. 60 Minutes, I think, had a, had a segment on that a couple of years ago about how, uh, you know, they're, they're killing the seabirds. 
and uh, it's it's become very difficult. That's right, and you know it, it's it's everywhere in the oceans now, and in, and in in aquatic systems. That is something that we can control by reducing the use of single plastics. You had mentioned recycling, and by better managing uh, waste. You know, making sure that it doesn't get to the ocean systems. We have a long way to go, and then there are some efforts to pull it out of the ocean. But the key. As with many problems, is to stop the flow of, um, you know, of this pollution, and then second is to remove it. Yeah. Uh, in the a minute or so we have left, uh, Joe, can can you talk a little bit about what you'd like to see in the short term in the woods of New England in terms of uh, restoration of of wildlife? Yeah, I think Brad, you know, as we're starting to see some farmland. Um, Closed, sadly, some dairy farms. I'm hoping that that one of the ways forward is to think about how we can use this land better for wildlife. That is for large animals, whether it's deer, moose, restoring animals like mountain lions, thinking about what what rewilding New England would be like. That would be fascinating. And I bet you if we walked outside one day and said, wow, you know, look at the number of birds or look at that moose crossing or I, I'm always thrilled when I see black bears and other species that have come back. So I think two things, making sure we zone the right way and then uh, making sure that we restore the native wildlife to this region. It's doable. It's exciting. And I think um, it will be very very effective for conservation going forward. Yeah, um, geez, uh, it sure it sure feels like it. Um, in in places where there is uh, a dearth of of. Of, uh, like a farm field, for example, where, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, even, even deer can feed out there sometimes. Um, uh, do you, do you get the sense that, uh, it, it's going to take longer than it needs to, to, to regenerate some wildlife? Well, certainly we've seen the regeneration of a lot of species over the past hundred years. That's the good news. And now as we see more housing, as you noted, there's going to be some conflict as more houses are coming in. So the key is planning better. But we want a diversity of landscape. We want certainly woodlands and all the species that depend on it. But we also need grasslands or we need hay fields where woodcock or quail or other species are found. So a diverse landscape is a healthy one. But what we really want to do is make sure that these habitats are connected so that animals can move around. And that's where you get this idea, these nutrient networks. We think of animals, if plants are the lungs of the planet, then animals are the circulatory system, the beating heart of the planet. And that's what we want to explore. Joe Roman, uh, uh, um, the fellow... Uh, and marine ecologist, conservation biologist at uh, UVM's Envi- um, Gund Institute. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.